Take your Bibles and let's go back to 1 Peter. We're in 1 Peter chapter 3. We'll be looking this morning at verses 18 through 22. In the next couple weeks, you'll be hearing, continuing in our series from our assistant pastors. Pastor Stephen will be next week in chapter 4. And then Pastor Jonathan the, the following week. Uh, my wife and I, my family, will be going to Arizona on our vacation. So we will miss you, but we'll be looking forward to returning again. And you will be hearing Peter's message to us still here in this book. We have been talking about suffering as Peter is addressing us, as he's giving us a perspective, a mindset that he wants us to have. Suffering is difficult. This book acknowledges that. It's disorienting. We tend to believe that if I am living a godly life according to God's will, then my life should be smooth without significant hardship. That's the way we just think is the norm. But Peter's seeking to equip us with a mindset that this is not true. That should not be our expectation. Last week, I compared to what Peter is doing in this letter, equipping believers with an exile mindset, as similar to what a parent does preparing her children to attend an event that they are not looking forward to. She tells them what to expect, how to behave, perhaps a reward that will follow. We might say this letter is similar to a coach or a cadet's commanding officer telling him about the challenges that are to come while encouraging him that the hardship and sacrifice will be worth it in the end. When an Olympian stands atop that podium, he knows that all the agony of training and injury were worth those moments of pain and suffering when he's crowned the victor. Peter's telling us that suffering is not defeat. It's not failure. Suffering for doing good comes with the blessing of God. We're going to look at our passage this morning, but I want to back up to the text before, and we'll read one verse after to help give us the context of our passage in verses 18 through 22. So go back to 1 Peter chapter 3. We'll begin reading in verse 13. And we are assured as we read that this is our God speaking his words to us today. God says in verse 13, Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, those opponents, nor be troubled. But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense, give an answer to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For or because Christ also suffered once for sins. The righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. 
in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this salvation through the ark, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Let's ask for God's grace as we consider this passage, his words for us this morning. Father, we come before you recognizing our need, our dependence. There are truths here that we must embrace. There are encouragements here for us to dwell in our hearts. There are challenges in this text that are hard to understand. May your spirit who inspired these words continue to speak to us through them this morning. Help us to know and be encouraged by the truths here. In Jesus' name, amen. In this text, Peter is telling us to be encouraged as you face suffering by meditating on Christ's greater triumph over even deeper suffering. We're encouraged as we look at Christ, as we look at his suffering. He urges us to be encouraged as we face opposition, arguing that if God can bring meaning and glory out of that greater suffering of Christ, then he certainly can bring meaning and glory from our suffering as well. Now, how does Peter encourage us? By what means? He takes our face and says, look at Christ again. He calls us to meditate on him, to remember his work for our eternal good. He's saying, look at what he's already accomplished for you. Don't be discouraged by temporary things. Look at what he's done. As we read this passage, I'm sure you got the sense that this is a very challenging and confusing passage. It certainly is one of the most challenging passages in all of the New Testament, even in all of the Bible. We'll look at some of those verses in a little bit, but I don't want us to lose sight of the main point and purpose of the text as we consider what Peter is continuing to do in this letter. If you just look at verses 18 and then 22, Peter's point is very clear. Certainly there are some things difficult to understand, but the Spirit has much for us to be encouraged by, even in the places that leave us with questions. So we'll consider three points from the text this morning. First, remember the unique suffering of Christ. Look, behold, meditate, remember his unique sufferings. We should notice first in verse 18 the word for. We looked back at the last text because we have to know what Peter is saying in order to understand what he's doing here in 18 through 22. In verse 17, he writes a summary of that previous section. It is better to suffer for doing good if that's God's will than for doing evil. And now he shows us why it's better. He says for or because. Jesus is the ultimate example of what God is able to do with suffering. 
He's the greatest encouragement that Peter can provide to us. And this is the third time that Peter will bring our attention again to look Jesus fully in the face. To see his work for us. God can bring triumph out of the sufferings. The unjust, unfair sufferings of Jesus. Seeming defeat. Then surely he can bring good from our suffering as well. We battle hardship in this life by remembering his example. We battle suffering in this life by remembering we've been brought to God. What then can separate us from his love? Jesus' suffering, we're told first, was sacrificial. For Christ also suffered. Jesus, the perfect God-man, suffered and died. Now, as Peter is intending for us to look at this idea, these concepts, these truths about who Jesus was and what he did, please don't pass over these phrases, this verse, just because the concept is familiar. Take the encouragement that Peter, the Holy Spirit, intends. Marvel at how incredible this statement truly is. God became man for your sake. He took on flesh. He submitted himself to death willingly. He didn't have to do that. He wasn't overcome by some supreme power. He gave himself to torture on a cross. Consider why these first century believers are facing such hostility. They are proclaiming that a man who is executed as a criminal on a cross had risen from the dead and ascended to heaven. Pause and think about that. That's an insane message that doesn't happen. You've never seen it in your lifetime. But that's their message. It's our message. Listen to how one theologian describes this message. To Jewish ears, the idea of a crucified Messiah was a contradiction in terms. The Messiah would reign, not die. To Gentiles, the claim that the salvation of the world had come through a crucified Jewish criminal was an absurdity. To both Jew and Gentile, the suggestion that death, particularly death on a cursed cross, could bring eternal life was blasphemous idiocy. This doesn't make sense to the natural man. No hero wins by dying at the hands of his enemies. But that's the preaching of the cross. We preach Christ, Paul says. We preach him crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. His suffering was not only sacrificial, it was Sufficient, Peter says. For Christ also suffered once. Once for sins. You have to understand all the buildup that the Old Testament is setting up for us. This makes his sacrifice unique. He died one time because his sacrifice was so valuable and precious and sufficient. He did what millions and millions of animal sacrifices could never do. He satisfied God's demand for a payment for sin and provide perfect righteousness 
to the sinner. Hebrews 7, 27 tells us, unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. The author of Hebrews says again, Christ has appeared once for all to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many. Peter's saying his death, his suffering was sufficient and complete to solve man's greatest problem. I want you to think of this throughout all of human history. Consider how many billions of people have been concerned with this question, both today and throughout time. How can sinful man rightly be related to God? There are thousands of different answers today. All religions are trying to answer that single question. It's eternally significant. But only Christianity points to a divine solution. Only Christianity admits, no, you cannot do it. There's no amount of good works or sacrifices that can get you to God. Only one sacrifice provided by the triune God can ever bring you to him. And Jesus did that work. Jesus' suffering was also undeserved. Christ also suffered once for sins. He became the lamb slain before the foundation of the world, the spotless, sinless sacrifice for sin. They were not his sins. He took the blame. He bore the wrath so that we can stand forgiven at that cross. Fourth, Jesus' suffering was substitutionary. It says the righteous one for the unrighteous. The righteous one died for sins he did not commit. More so, he was made sin for us. He became the sin bearer. All the sins of mankind were laid on him. He bore the wrath of God for our sins. The apostle John writes, my dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the father Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Jesus had to be perfectly righteous in order to pay for your sin. Consider the analogy. Imagine both you and your best friend declared bankruptcy. You'd been through a horrible time financially. You were both bankrupt. But as you heard your friend's story, you heard how bad his circumstances were. You were moved to want to help him. But you you have no finances. You have no ability to help. Those who are bankrupt themselves cannot provide relief. No human being can do this. You could only help if you had an abundance of wealth that you could transfer to him. Only Jesus has the righteousness needed to be placed on your spiritual account. And he does so willingly while we're still sinners. He exchanges his credit for your sin debt. You have all 
his righteousness. Next, Jesus' suffering was purposeful. Verse 18 says he did all of this so that he might bring us to God. We were separated from our good creator. And Christ alone can bridge the chasm our sin places between God and the sinner. His suffering was eternally purposeful. He accomplished what he intended to do. And he alone can accomplish this. You can only ever be in a right relationship with God through the work of Jesus Christ. That's why we say we're saved by faith alone, in Christ alone, by his grace alone, for God's glory alone. It has nothing to do with your efforts. Paul tells us we were far off but have now been brought near because Christ claimed us as his own. Just as Jesus' suffering was purposeful, so your suffering is purposeful in God's hands. Do you see what Peter is doing by calling us to behold our Christ? Look at how your God is able. Remember what Peter wrote back in chapter 1, verse 6? He said, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary. You've been grieved by various trials. Peter's saying our suffering can never be without purpose. We're God's children through Christ. And God will only ever work for the good of his beloved children. So when it seems like you can't see his face. When you're tempted to doubt whether he's with you or not. When you're tempted to think I must have done something wrong. Life isn't going well. You can reject an excuse like that by looking at the cross. Our trials are to be seen as necessary when he brings them into our life. That doesn't mean we never do something deserving fatherly discipline. But ultimately, they're never telling us that God is against me. Very often in life, we will not receive a logical explanation as to why. Think of Job. He's never given an answer why. And he demands that answer of God. The inspired author at the beginning of the book says Job is upright. And God says, Job, you don't need an answer why. That's what the book is telling us. You need to know who stands behind it all. And that's what God gives Job. He doesn't give Job all the answers he seeks. He gives him more of himself through the hardship. So we can be sure that according to his wisdom, they're necessary and they're good. So what might God be doing through the hardships he's allowing in your life right now? Do you believe Peter, the Spirit, that God intends them for good? They're purposeful. They're meant to be even a blessing. What suffering might he be preparing you for? Don't fear or be anxious. This is the conqueror. And in him we share triumph. This is why Peter's so sure our hope is on solid foundations. Finally, Jesus is suffering was supernatural. 
We're told at the end of verse 18, Jesus was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. This is another way that Peter's explaining the death and resurrection of Christ. This can be a bit of a confusing phrase, but it seems best to understand these two phrases mean that his death took place in the sphere of the flesh, the earthly temporal existence. He died a real human death. But his resurrection, while certainly physical, is more than that as well. He's raised incorruptible. His resurrection took place in the realm of the spirit, the eternal, the indestructible, the heavenly realm. When he was raised, his body, Paul says, was a demonstration of what our bodies will be made into, a spiritual body, one that will never die. That second phrase could also mean he was raised by the Spirit. Perhaps they're they're linked. Either understanding makes the point that Jesus was victorious over sin and death. Suffering does not mean defeat for Jesus. And he's applying this victory to us as well. Just because you're suffering doesn't mean God's forgotten you, is punishing you, or is against you. Your hardships are never for nothing. Our willingness to suffer for the sake of Christ, which we're told to do in verse 17, is grounded in the wonder of Christ's willingness to suffer for us. Verse 18. Christians become willing to suffer for Jesus only as we meditate on Christ's willingness to suffer death for our sake. John Piper makes this point. Someone might ask, why would anyone become a Christian? If what you could offer them was that things in this world would probably go worse for them and that their lives would be at risk, why would anyone become a Christian if that's the path forward? The answer is that the greatest human needs are not to live long on the earth and be comfortable here. The greatest human needs are to have our sins forgiven And overcome our separation from God and live forever with happiness in his presence instead of living forever in the misery of hell. That's 10,000 times more important than living long on the earth and being comfortable for a zillionth percentage of your existence. Do you see the comparison of the temporary versus the eternal? This is temporary. This is the worst it can ever be get for the Christian this life and the suffering that comes along with it. Secondly, we're told to remember the powerful resurrection of Christ. Now, in verses 19 through 21, we enter some of the most challenging verses in the Bible. One commentator calculated that based on the fact that almost every phrase in these verses is capable of capable of being understood differently, there are about 180 different exegetical combinations or possibilities. That is true. I looked at a lot of them. I'm guessing it's true, not 180. Martin Luther famously wrote of this text, a wonderful text this is, and a more obscure passage perhaps than any other in the Testament, so that I do not know for certainty just what Peter means. I cannot understand it. What do we do when we come to difficult passages? Do we despair? Do we say, well, what is God doing? 
why, why wouldn't he write something that's so much clearer and helpful? Difficult passages present us an opportunity in several different ways. And I want you to consider these. It presents for us the opportunity for humility and dependence. A text like this reminds us just how much we need the Spirit to help us understand what he wrote for us. It's a reminder. It's a shocking reminder. Wow, what's going on? We cannot and must not try to study God's word according to our own wisdom. Aren't we tempted sometimes as we work through passages to say, well, if I figure this out and this out, I get the general idea. And wow, I'm getting good at Bible study. Passages like this pull us up short. And in God's kindness, in his gifts to us, he says, you must bow before my wisdom. That's what he's doing. It presents us an opportunity to worship just how far above us God's thoughts are. These verses are describing realms that we have no experience with, no wisdom of. It gives us the opportunity to praise him for speaking to us in a language that we can understand even when it's a struggle. God speaks clearly. And even in passages like this where we don't know exactly what's happening, we know what the passage is about. There's clarity here, even in some of the confusion of the specifics. And it also gives us an opportunity to think, to sweat mentally. God intends for us to think very carefully as we read his word. It reminds us of the nature of what's happening. This is the revelation of God. It always will be above you. It always will require you to exercise all of your faculties to submit to him. So often we want Bible study to be easy and to come naturally. We get irritated and frustrated and think there must be something wrong with God because it's not easy. The problem isn't with God. It's with us. Very often we're lazy. We don't want to develop the skills that it takes to understand the Bible better and better. We must abandon the silly notion that Bible study should be easy and without work. We interpret what is difficult by what is clear. And that's helpful here as well. And I hope you will see that and ultimately be encouraged this morning by what Peter is clearly teaching. Now, I want to briefly summarize for you the three primary views. We're not going to go into great depth. But then I want to demonstrate how they fit into the context of what Peter is writing here. The first view argues that Jesus descended into hell. It sounds like what we hear in the Apostles' Creed. This view says that Jesus preached the gospel to the spirits of those who perished in the flood in the time of Noah. It tells us there in verse 19, he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. What could that mean? This view says that in doing this, Jesus is offering them a further opportunity to repent. Others within this view see Jesus proclaiming victory to the righteous dead. That's who they say the spirits are. They're waiting to be freed from the prison of death by his triumphant resurrection. Now, while this view takes the text or tries to take the text in a straightforward manner, it seems to be the least convincing to me. <coughs> 
A second major interpretation understands these imprisoned spirits to refer to fallen angels rather than to human beings. And that's a key difference. Who are these spirits? Jesus proclaims to them his victory and their doom. As Jesus ascends into heaven, he confronts all the realms of his enemies, demonstrating just how complete his victory truly is as he takes his exalted seat beside his father's throne. There are many fine expositors, modern proponents of this views, of this view. It perhaps handles the word spirit here in the most consistent way biblically. Peter does say in 2 Peter 2.4 and following, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald or preacher of righteousness, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. Jude 6 similarly says, And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. And Paul says in Colossians 2.15, Christ disarmed the rulers and authorities. Those are spiritual rulers and authorities. And put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So this view makes the most consistent sense of the word for spirits in verse 19. We usually see spirits referring to angelic, demonic beings. But the struggle for this view comes in verse 20. Why would there be an expectation of fallen angels, demonic spirits, believing or responding to Noah's proclamation? Secondly, we're never told elsewhere, this is stronger to me in the Bible, that God is patiently waiting for these spirits to respond to his truth. The third major interpretation views this passage as teaching that Christ preached through Noah to sinful human beings in the days of the flood. It's not saying that in between his death and resurrection, after his resurrection, he went anywhere Rather, it's metaphorical, saying Christ preached to those back in Noah's day. They rejected the truth and did not respond and are therefore in prison in hell. We find evidence or support for this in chapter 111, when Peter has told us the spirit of Christ preached through the prophets in the Old Testament. Noah would therefore be one of them. Noah and his family, though a small minority, like these believers to whom Peter is writing, were faithful and rescued from God's judgment on rampant wickedness. This would just mean then that Jesus Christ wins. And those that are evil, those that are doing evil, they suffer God's judgment as we've seen earlier in chapter 3. So the thought then is that Christ preached to the spirits who are now currently being held in prison. The NAS supplies that word now in order to make that point. And it seems to make good sense then of the nearer context. It makes the Noah connection more concrete without stumbling over the difficulty of fallen angels being preached to in Genesis 6. It also makes sense of 2 Peter 2.5 when it says that Noah preached righteousness. Why would Noah be preaching righteousness to fallen angels? Perhaps you're more convinced of one view over another. 
At one point earlier in the week, I think I was more convinced of the third view earlier than I am currently. None of these views are without challenge. And yet, even though we wish we could understand verses 19 and 20 more fully, the point is the same. Through his resurrection, Jesus wins over every power and principality and authority and ruler. And he's able to sustain his people no matter what suffering or opposition or how much in the minority they are. Noah is is used here to serve as an encouraging illustration to those who are suffering for good. It's as if Peter's saying, you know how you feel now. Think about how Noah felt, the only one who believed this crazy idea that a flood was coming when nobody had even seen rain. Verse 21 then says, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, why does Peter say that baptism saves you? What does that mean? He can't surely mean that literally. He's not brought up baptism anywhere else in this letter. What he's doing is using as a poignant and ready illustration based on what every believer has experienced in baptism. It's a second illustration of what Christ has accomplished through his death and resurrection. He's saying you've entered into this. You've testified to this through your baptism. You're already a part of this victory. Just as Noah was rescued from God's judgment by trusting God's means of rescue, that ark, so we are rescued by faith in Jesus. Think of it. Noah had to believe that God would be true to his word, both in bringing judgment and in providing rescue from that judgment. Think of the picture that the waters are giving us. The waters of judgment are also the means of his salvation, and baptism is a picture of this. It corresponds to this. We go under the water, symbolizing death to sin. It's a picture of God's judgment on Jesus Christ. And then we're raised to new life through that water, symbolizing newness and conquering of that death. Do you see the picture? This is supposed to expand and fill out our understanding of the beauty of baptism. Think of it, water is often used in the Bible as a symbol of judgment. Can you start making a list in your mind of some of those times that happened? Certainly the flood in Noah's day is a picture of this. Remember the Red Sea. As both the judgment and salvation provided to God's people and judgment on their enemies. Jesus picks up this language when he tells his disciples, he describes his coming death as a baptism. He says, are you really able to be baptized with the baptism with which I'm about to be baptized? His baptism into the suffering of the cross and death also provides a way of escape. It's both condemnation and rescue in one picture. This is what it means that Noah and his family were brought safely through that water. This is what is being pictured when a believer is immersed into the death of Christ. We're dead, Romans 6, to our old way of living. Those sins were crucified with Christ on the cross. They've been judged 
The water pictures that judgment. You're done with them. That's why Paul says in Romans 6, consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God. This is why Noah is such an encouraging example for these believers. It's why baptism is such a helpful analogy. Matthew Henry wrote in application, the way of the most or the way of the majority is neither the best, the wisest, nor the safest way to follow. Better to follow the eight in the ark than the eight million drowned by the flood and condemned for eternity for their unbelief and rejection of God's patient offer of salvation. Don't be bothered that you're in the minority. Peter's making it very clear. He does not mean for us to understand that baptism is the means of our salvation. He's not saying it has the ability to make one right with God. He's been saying throughout the book, faith in Christ's work saves. saves. He immediately says afterward, it's not a literal cleansing of the body, but a cleansing of the conscience, something internal that's happened, that's being pictured through that baptism event. If baptism is an appeal for a good conscience, then only those who can make such an appeal by faith are candidates for baptism. Do you see what this excludes? An infant, one who cannot profess faith, cannot be baptized. This passage holds an application for us as we think of who may receive baptism. It's teaching, again, believers baptism. Those who are appealing, making a pledge to God for a good conscience, for cleansing. Believers at baptism ask God on the basis of the death and resurrection of Christ to cleanse their consciences and to forgive their sins. They're making that pledge public. Salvation comes through faith and baptism is the outward demonstration of this reality. Notice all those phrases around it. We could even rightly connect the phrases at the beginning and end of the verse. Baptism now saves you through the resurrection of Jesus as you put faith in him. That's what saves you and baptism pictures that. Number three, in verse 22, we're called to remember the triumphant ascension of Christ. Verse 22 tells us that he has gone into heaven. He's at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Jesus Christ's work is complete. He's watching over his children as a merciful high priest. He not only endured through his suffering, it's the means to his glory. It's not a negative, it's a blessing. The Christ who suffered is sovereign over all. I want you to look again at this last verse and notice the very last verb in that sentence. It's the verb subjected. Now, where have we seen that word so far in this book? This is a beautiful turn, isn't it? It's been all over, but it's not been used like this. As Christians, we're to be subject to every human authority, even sinful ones. We've been told to subject ourselves to imperfect sinful governments. We submit to fallen sinful masters and spouses. But now look at how God provides us with hope that we will not always be in subjection to sinners, that we will not always live in this fallen, broken world. The king has taken his seat. He will come and make all things right. Our hope is not in vain. 
Justice is not being overthrown or overlooked. Our sufferings in this life are temporary because King Jesus reigns. Supreme and for all time. He subjects all things and all powers under his feet and perfect justice. So though you suffer now under imperfect human authorities, they're not ultimately in charge. He subjected all things. Therefore, be confident in him. Behold your Christ and be encouraged. Our passage calls us to be encouraged that our sovereign God is able to bring complete, absolute victory out of seeming defeat in your life. So we can say your suffering is never for nothing. Elizabeth Elliot has written a book by this title, and in this statement, in this title, we're reminded that our hardships are never purposeless in the hands of our gracious God. It's okay if we're in the minority. God has a plan and purpose in that. Even if we can't understand from our current view, we trust and believe. The Puritan pastor and author Richard Baxter wrote a hymn that states, Christ leads me through no darker rooms than he went through before. Wow, that's encouraging, isn't it? You're following his example. Christ knows even greater and deeper suffering for your sin because of you, but in order that he might bring you to God. He knows greater pain than any suffering we may ever be called to endure. He's gone before you and will go with you. So if God can make sense of the suffering of Jesus Christ, if he can bring eternal good for you personally, through that depth of suffering, then you can be confident he can do the same in your pain. Embrace this exile mindset, Peter says. Stand firm in this grace. Battle your anxiety over hardship by the circumstances of your life by looking at Christ and all he's done for you. Fight your fear by honoring Christ's work on the cross for your sake. Trust that God knows exactly what he's doing as he did with Noah, as he did with Christ, as you've professed in your baptism. Suffering does not equal defeat or failure. It's never without purpose. It can never be separated from God's love, his wisdom, his sovereignty, or his presence. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you are with me. Behold Christ again and again and again and take confidence in his triumph over sin and death. Be encouraged, Peter says, by his sufferings for you. Let's pray. Gracious God, we rejoice and marvel and worship our Christ this morning. He does what no other God can do. He does far more exceedingly than we can even ask or think or imagine. 
there is no one like you. Our only response can be worship and adoration. You are holy and just and merciful and kind and wise and supreme and loving. So whatever you ask of us in this life, we will follow. We want to follow. May Christ become so great to us that he could never ask us anything we won't do. We won't obey him. So Father, push away our sins. Help us to set them aside as we look in the face of our Christ who loved us and gave himself for us.